Welcome to Life in the Land and Gracie, her podcast telling stories of women living across rural and remote Australia. My name is M. Herbert, back with our special summer series of the Life in the Land podcast. Here, the Gracie Her team choose their favourite story of the year and explain why it's their favourite. Gracie Her team member, Shannon Dunn, chose today's conversation with Meg Bignall. Meg is a sometimes farmer from Tasmania, a published author, a trained trauma nurse and a former weather presenter on Tassie's Nightly News. Here, Shan talks about why Meg's chat with Sky so touched her. Hi, I'm Shannon, and I look after subscriptions here each week at Grazy Hair. My favourite Life on the Land episode so far is with Meg Bignall. Listening to Meg, I found myself immediately wanting to be her friend, with all her wisdom, many talents, beautiful energy, empathy and humour. Meg's ability to embrace life's opportunity is ridiculously inspiring, with a life that has taken such fascinating turns career-wise, but so comforting to know that the country will always be her home. I hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as what I did. Hi, I'm Sky Manson, your host for this episode. Today's guest, Meg Bignall, isn't a farmer's wife, but a sometimes farmer. You'll rarely find her milking the cows, but without her... Her family may not be able to make a living from their dairy cows, nor live on the farm. For there would be no one to make sure the children got a good education in a bigger city, drive long distances to sporting events, move a mob of cows at a minute's notice, make business phone calls, or generally tie up all the loose ends to form some semblance of an ordered life. I think many of you might also be sometimes farmers. Meg Bignall, who grew up on a farm growing hops for the Cascade Brewery in Tasmania, is also so many things. A published author, she's a trained trauma nurse, she presented the weather on the Tassie Nightly News, wrote medical scripts for Channel 7's All Saints, and there is more and more and more, including her soon-to-be-released assertion on the modern-day feminist, her novel The Angry Women's Choir. So let's take a step into Meg Bignall's life to find out how it all comes together for her. Uh, Well, I wear so many different hats because I live on a farm. I have three teenage children and they're very busy outside of school and their school is also in Hobart, which is about an hour and a half's drive away. So we spend a lot of time in a in a little house in town a lot of time packing bags and unpacking bags and working out when we can get back to the farm and back to their dad and my husband so we have a very sort of chaotic divided kind of life at the moment which is just the nature of the phase that I'm in and I check my privilege all the time because I'm so lucky to be in that position but it's also a struggle because I'm a country girl and I don't want to be in the city. But I also need to encourage my children to be involved in things. So phase of life. So, yes, lots of different hats. I think that's so relatable for women in the country everywhere, isn't it? And this 
we have so much opportunity, luckily, at our fingertips and you do want to make the most of that. And we can make the most of that. We can drive and technology can hook us up across various locations. Um, sometimes just a bit bloody crazy, isn't it? <laughs> it's completely crazy. Some days I can't remember where I'm meant to be and who I am and, you know, it conflicts with the phase of life that I'm at which is basically perimenopause. <laughs> so I spend a lot of time feeling a bit grumpy, which is really, you know, I, then I beat myself up about that because I'm such in such, such a lucky position. But I, you know, I just really want to spend more time in my garden. Tell me about your home. Paint me a picture. Um, yeah, so our home is really, and I'm probably biased, but it's in the most beautiful part of Tasmania we're right on the coast so where I where I'm sitting now I'm looking out over the Tasman Sea um, I can see our milking herd in the foreground um, and everything's extremely green because we've just had the most wonderful season of all time I think and we live up on a hill where we can I can see the tractors moving around I can see where my husband is, um, I can spy on him. <laughs> um, yeah, and I've got um, a garden that is very neglected at the moment but has a lot of potential, I like to say. <laughs> no wonder you are a writer with that kind of outlook. Yes, and I'm, you know, I've, I'm so lucky because I grew up in another really beautiful part of Tasmania in the Derwent Valley right on the river and you know, I'm very, very spoiled. And it's only really quite recently that I've, I look at with such admiration at my home and my, and my, the place where I grew up. I sort of took it for granted for so long. And then I was in the throes of very busy motherhood with three children under four and got caught up in that. And then when it wasn't until I kind of had to go away from my home that I really looked at it and really appreciated it. And, you know, I feel like the luckiest person, really. Talk to me a little bit more about that. Like what made you realise that home was so unbelievably wonderful to you and, in, and comparatively? I think, again, it was the homesickness that I experienced when I had to be in town with the children. It wasn't, you know, I... I've, I'm not a very good city person. I found myself every time there was a noise, I'd be at the window checking out what it was, like a really nosy neighbour. It was, it was, and then the dog would bark because he's a country dog and it, we weren't very well suited to it. I'm getting much better at it and I've got a lovely group of friends in Hobart and they've made it much easier. But I've realised I grew up on a farm and then I spent a little bit of time here and there in cities but I've always lived in the country and that's where I want to be so when my children have finished school I'm not going to live in a city ever again <laughs> tell me tell me about growing up in the Derwent Valley and what your what your childhood days looked like what did you do there uh, just idyllic my dad was a hop farmer so we had quite a small farm but high intensive horticulturally and um, we grew hops for Cascade Brewery and that, and that was until a sort of the mid-80s when the industry the hop industry was in decline and we ended up uh, diversifying and my dad's sort of spearheaded 
a lot of that diversification movement in, in Tassie and did various ventures with horticulture and these beautiful old hop kilns. So he investigated diversifying the buildings and making them into various different things. My sister now runs the, the place. We sold the land but kept the buildings and she runs it as an events place. So it's a sort of quintessential rural ad adaptation in a little country town that had a terrible decline in the 80s and is now sort of coming out of that, um, which is wonderful to see. So it was my sister and I playing in an enormous garden with our grandparents next door on the banks of the beautiful Derwent River. So, yes, it is as idyllic as you, as you can imagine. It was just I'm so lucky. How has the Derwent River influenced you? I think I've seen the importance of community in small country towns um, having lived through really bad economic times and decline in the 80s and 90s every second shop in our high street was boarded up or empty you know there were three sort of main industries that kept the town afloat and all three of them declined very quickly so there was unemployment a lot of vandalism high crime rates um a lot of despondency but the core community are still there they and they've really rallied and you know and then I moved to Brim Creek which is <clears throat> just north of Dunalley which experienced terrible bushfires in 2013 so my children's school burnt down and most of the town and again just that community spirit that kept everyone, and this is really relevant at the moment to people in the Lismore area and on, you know, Northern Rivers. I'm sure they're going to experience this too, but um, both my upbringing in a small town and my current life in a small town have proved to me how important it is to be part of a community because they will get you through. Yeah, I love what you're saying. <clears throat> um, and also it's so nice to get... Uh, um, a window into into Tasmania because um, I think from afar you just view it to be this wonderfully pristine place that is so naturally beautiful but and that's right but also people who live there really have to from what you're saying struggle through to 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 be able to live in such a beautiful place yeah absolutely I mean we don't spend every day hiking through our pristine wilderness, um, mm. you know, as much as we'd like to. And I love that side of being in Tasmania as well. But it's a balance. You have to work. And so many of the people that work in these small country towns rely on the kind of industry that is at odds with um, our environmental reputation as a pristine wilderness. So, you know, you have to embrace everyone and be empathetic. I'm all about empathy. Um, it features highly in my writing and listening. I think there's a lot of people um, from all aspects of politics that don't listen to each other and it's really evident in Tasmania. We have to work together, you know, especially when it comes to things like flood, fire, um, economic distress. We just have to and I see it once a year in Brim Creek, we have a little agricultural show, which is called the Brim Creek Show, and it's pretty iconic in Tasmania now. 
because it keeps all those really old-fashioned uh, values. We come together, it takes a huge amount of work, we put this show on and it just lifts everyone every year and it throws people together from forestry to the greens, you know, like it's just, it's magical. Is it traditional in the sense that it has cake stalls and um, floral exhibitions and wool and do you show your dairy cows and tell me about that? Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what it's like. We have a hall of industry where um, you can enter your chutney, your doilies, your your knitting, your wine, um, flowers, vegetables, that kind of thing. We have an animal nursery yet where, yes, we take out calves and on the arena we have these bullocks these incredible bullock teams like old-fashioned bullock teams that do a display and there's like you know working dogs all the things but no show bags no rides no sideshows it's all just really good earthy wholesome stuff and people love it they flock here it's so good I love that. It's quite a nostalgic thing, the country show thing, I think. And there are ones dotted, dotted, you know, they're not everywhere that um, really pride it and have a new generation of people who uh, understand and really want to keep that alive. So that's great. Well done. Yeah, it's so, it's so good. And we've got young people, I sound like an old lady now, but we've got young people coming through wanting to help. And we know that it's got a solid future which is really nice. Meg I'm interested to know as a child growing up in the Derwent on along the Derwent River I wonder what your if you can remember back to your sort of mindset what your horizons looked like did you think oh I could be anything in the world or I'm just going to be a farmer like dad and then I suppose eventually how did writing come into it? Okay, so I was, I've got an extremely vivid imagination and did so as a child. I had a wonderful, gentle, funny, silly father and a very driven, gentle, motivated feminist mother, So, which is such a wonderful combination. There was so much laughter. There was the idea that women, they had two daughters, no sons, so women could do anything. And so I sort of took that and ran with it and decided that I was definitely going to be in Hollywood. I was going to be an actress. Um, At one stage I was going to be a spy. (laughs) That's an ambition that's never quite left me. Um, And I always, we made, mum used to tell us make up stories and my sister and I had elaborate sort of games where we were lost you know, and abandoned and we sort of created these dramatic, tragic scenarios for ourselves because our life was so, you know, great. So I didn't think I'd be a farmer (laughs) and I'm pretty sure mum and dad didn't really want us to be farmers. Dad had a fair bit of pressure on him as the eldest son, so Mm -hmm. they were happy not to put that onto us. And mum was was an academic. She worked in Hobart, commuted every day. Um, So I knew that my horizons could be as broad as I wanted them to be. And then um, writing was just sort of part of my life. Books and writing were just part of my life. I didn't ever say I'm going to be a writer. I actually went into nursing because at that stage, the government funded your degree and you were 
absolutely 100% going to get a job at the end of it. It was an odd choice for me because I'm a humanities person, but I did a science degree. But I ended up nursing and it was a, was a terrific career path. It really took me out of my very happy, sheltered bubble and showed me the world. I worked in a really busy emergency department as my first job and went on to study trauma in, in Melbourne. My eyes were opened. Mm. But it was not easy as a young, very young person in that environment. So I used to write a journal and occasionally I'd write a piece for a local paper and I found that I was enjoying it as a hobby. And then I moved into, um, I made a dramatic move in the middle of some sort of horrible night shift period where I was probably not thinking straight. And I applied for a job with the local television station as a copywriter, thinking maybe I could use this hobby of writing and actually earn some money and not have to work shift work. Mm. To my own surprise, I got that job and then made, made the decision to completely depart from nursing and medicine into television. <laughs> what drew you to study trauma? Um, <clears throat> oh, dear, this is where the side of me that isn't not very attractive comes out because I'm, I, I said about how my sister and I used to make these dramatic, tragic stories when we were younger, and I still have this innate sort of voyeuristic interest in drama and if there's an accident somewhere I need to know what happened how everyone is Um, I think I was attracted to the drama of it Mm. which sounds terrible but um, I've never I've never been so useful and needed and vital as part of a team so that was really addictive yeah, I think I just wanted to be on the cold face and I, I really was. And to have all the answers and to know exactly yep. what you were doing and to be. Yep. I think that isn't there a little bit of that in everyone that is drawn to the drama? Like you say, it's addictive. and um, I think maybe there's a little bit, a little bit in everyone. I was, it was, it always annoyed my family and it annoys me a little bit. You know, if you if there's a dog with three legs walking past me, I need to go and ask what happened to the dog. Like I still do it. It's it's really annoying. Um, and I've seen the trait come out in a couple of my children. So I'm like, it's not my fault. It's completely genetic. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really nosy. It's really, and then, you know, maybe it feeds into the material I use for my work. And mm. obviously I don't break confidentiality ever, but... Um, but yeah, I, it feeds into my sense of drama, and you have to be a little bit dramatic to write fiction. You know, you mm. have to dramatize things. Mm. Well, without never gazing too much, I can I can really relate to that, and um, I love it how you say nosy because maybe I'd choose to say curious, and that's a way more acceptable word. <laughs> like, like um, within society, but and I always think oh, that's the journalist coming out because you want to know what the story is and I want to know if there is a story there and then perhaps be able to share it if that person wants to share it. And I I like to think that by having that curiosity, you might give someone the platform to be able to tell their story when when no one else had asked them 
And that's, that's a lovely way of putting it. And I should temper it by saying that I never want a bad outcome. I'm a big happy endings person. So I don't get any joy from other people's misfortune, but I want to I want to make sure everyone's okay, see if I can help. You know, having that background, I'm not registered as a nurse anymore, but it's just been, it, it, it's bloody helpful on a farm and in a mm. small district mm. and on the football sidelines for your children. Like it's, it's, it's helpful. And I like, I like that. <laughs> so, yeah. So you moved into TV and did that turn into um, giving you your actor's stage? Yeah, it did. I worked as uh, I wrote really bad adverts for, you know, local products and local television. And we had so much fun doing that. Polishing turds, we called it. And worked with a small team all over northern Tasmania. It was so great. And then they put me in front of the camera as the weather girl. I think I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. So I was Tasmania's weather girl for a few years for the evening news, which did appeal to my, um, how should we put it kindly, my affection for being in the limelight. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's your Hollywood. Yeah, or maybe got, it got better, I don't know. Kind of little version of Hollywood in Tasmania. Um, <laughs> and then funnily enough, I was offered a job because I had this background in nursing and, and in television, which is a really odd, rare combination, I got offered a job on Channel 7 All Saints, oh, right. that old yes. drama, mm-hmm. hospital drama, um, as a medical advisor. So I was like, hell yeah. <laughs> I left my position at Wind Television Tasmania, went over there to Sydney and worked at um, the Seven Network for, I think it was about 12 months altogether, working one week in the script department with the story in the story meetings and one week on set directing actors on how to make various medical things look realistic. It was very high stress, higher stress even than being in a busy emergency department. The um, personalities there were something else, another eye-opener for me. And, um, but... That's my son on his motorbike. Love sorry. it. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> but um, being in a story meeting in with the writers and I could only contribute as far as, you know, we can't do that medically or we can or that's not believable, but I was addicted to how they made the storylines. It was absolutely compelling and inspiring and a really wonderful experience. So from there, I took my little dramatic, curious, limelighty nature and started writing novels. Um, and it wasn't long after that. Um, I was having such a wonderful time in the television industry in Sydney and my husband, my now husband, ruined it completely by coming over and from Tassie and proposing. Mm. So I said yes and came back to Tassie and that was the end of my television career, <laughs> although it wasn't really because I made some short films and played around with the film industry here in Tassie, which is a vibrant little community and um, had a lot of fun there and then had children. So it was much easier after that to sit at a desk and write books. 
Oh gosh. So I have so many questions about all of that. Um, I love, uh, yeah, such, so kind of non-linear. It just, it's, um, I love learning about people's lives and trajectories and how they, how they get to where they are. So how did it come about that you got that job offered to work with All Saints? Was there connections there or did you see it in a newspaper or? I think I must've seen it. I actually can't remember that, that story. I'm, I had connections with production in Sydney and I'd been doing some work with a local production company up there and I think maybe the ad came through there. I can't remember exactly, but, yeah, one of those fateful moments. When when did Richard come um, into the picture before you moved to Sydney, I'm guessing? I met, uh, he and I got together, we met in a pub by mutual friends as it happens in Tasmania or everywhere. Everywhere. Um, So we'd been together for about maybe 18 months and I'd been living with him for about 12 of those months. And then um, he's eight years older than me. So when the opportunity came came up to go to Sydney, I still felt like there was stuff I needed to do before I settled down. I kind of had a good idea that, Richard was the one, I guess. We had a long-distance relationship for that 12 months that I was in Sydney, which was fun actually because he'd come over and we'd had have lovely, you know, weekends together and I'd come home and it'd be nice coming home as well. And, you know, so it was actually just another lovely phase. Of course there were difficulties and, you know, we missed each other, but I had a lovely time. When he proposed it felt like it was time to come home and he was um, quite keen to get started with a family by then. (laughs) Boarding Schools Expo Australia has been a trusted resource for families searching for the right boarding school for their children and now they're reaching right across Australia. Established for 17 years, Boarding Schools Expo has welcomed over 10,000 children to their expos and helped fill beds in boarding schools up and down the eastern states. Now they've launched Boarding Expo 365, a virtual expo reaching families across Australia. Whether you're up in the Kimberley, flying choppers east of Normanton or making brie on King Island, Boarding Expo 365 will showcase schools right from your kitchen table. It's truly destination boarding from wherever you call home. Head to their website, www.boardingexpo.com.au to discover your boarding school options today and register to visit one of their free events online or in a town near you. The other thing I really wanted to know was how did you make the switch from um, All Saints to actually wanting to write a novel? Had that always been boiling away and you're just waiting for the time or were you like, oh, hang on, I might do this? No, it had been boiling away because I'd actually already written one when I was working at Wind Television. I submitted a competition, a writing competition. I put like 5,000 words of the, an opening scene of a novel into a competition with the Tasmanian Writers' Centre. And then I, I won a mentorship program. So I was given an established writer as a mentor to finish that novel. So I wrote that 
over a period of maybe 12 months, I think it was. I mean, I, I've still got it, but it's absolute, it's trash. So I'd sort of already looked into that territory, I guess, and then put it in the bottom drawer, kept writing various little bits and pieces and did a lot more writing with my work by then. So that, that was the novel thing was bubbling away. Eventually, like fast forward a decade, I guess, and I had children and I was writing a blog just mainly to cure myself of my brain going dead as a mother of twins and then a third, you know, very shortly after that. So wow. I was writing a blog and I got together with another writer um, who's become a wonderful friend, Maggie McKellar, who's a friend of your program. And I um, love Maggie. Yeah, she's just been, I can't describe how um, grateful I am to have Maggie in my life because eventually she said, you just just write it because I was t- always talking about, oh, maybe you could do this. What about this idea for a book? And But I'd already done one and it was a bit shit and, you know, in the bottom drawer and so I just didn't think I could do it again. But she encouraged me no end and, yeah, and now I'm my third novel's about to come out with Penguin Random House. So, yeah, I owe a lot of that to Maggie. I definitely want to talk more about your novels, but I also am so interested in this little clique that seems to be, not little, but um, little writer's clique that seems to be um, happening in Tasmania. Tell me about that. Oh, yes, it's just so exciting. There's so much talent here and, um, yeah, I don't know what's going on, but there's sort of a microcosm of creativity that's always been here, of course, but... um, I don't know, maybe there's like a, a groundswell of interest in, in Tasmania and it's kind of piquing people's imaginations and things. But, yeah, there's a very supportive, really talented um, bunch of writers down here. And, you know, we don't all hang out and stuff, but we just look after each other. So when there's a publication, that, you know, we'll get around it and, everyone will support each other and it's just so lovely and there's some extremely I mean way talent more talented than me writers that are really going to um, do amazing things it's just so exciting to watch. Do you think that each of those writers have farming and rural backgrounds as a basis to draw upon? I think most Tasmanian writers have some sort of rural experience to draw from absolutely Mm. whether they're Mm. from a farm or not but everyone's got a shack on the beach or a or a at the lake or you know they've been in the high country they've been inspired by fly fishing or surfing or some sort of interaction with nature maybe I mean this must be true of so many places in Australia but I think it's rare. I've just recently judged a short story competition, which was Tasmanian-based but open to everyone. But I think a lot of the writers were from Tasmania, evidently, by their work. But every single one, I think I've read 50, have a nature uh, element. And so, yeah, uh, which is wonderful because, my goodness, the world needs more nature stuff what, we need what do you to... think that is why as in why do you think the nature element is com- showing coming through now I think we're all realizing how vitally important it is to appreciate nature and how life-saving world-saving it can be and for those of us who are not fighters 
or don't have a time for activism, but have vivid imaginations and some sort of semblance of skill in a field like writing or art or filmmaking, then it feels like a duty to these days to shed light on on the fact that, you know, humans are pretty rough on our planet. <laughs> and I'm not an environmentalist writer or an activist writer, but we it's it's urgent. It's urgent. So we have to, I think. You just put that so beautifully. I think, you know, in whatever your profession, there is avenue for um, highlighting and we're so entrenched in nature anyway, just as beings, you can you can highlight it in, in your own special ways. Um, where do you write? Where don't I write? Um, got it. I write at the kitchen bench. I've got a stand-up desk because I'm a sort of a jumpy, active person, so I find it hard to sit for too long. So I have a stand-up desk where I move to, then I move back to the kitchen table, then I move by the fire because it's cold and I live in Tasmania. And then I write in my car when I'm waiting for the children. And what do you moment, write into? I Well, I write into my very bomby little laptop and, um, and sometimes I speak into my phone if I haven't got and I have a, no, a notebook with me at all times which has an index which I've created. Wow, that's index. impressive. This, I've worked like this for um, maybe 10 years. Then I can, at the end of the year, because I use one a year, I, then I can find all my important things and transfer them into other things. But if I've got, so that's my general one, if I've got a project, I have separate ones for each project. So this is a book, a future book. At the moment I'm sitting at my mum's tiny little writing desk, which she gave to me, and it's shoved in a corner of my bedroom on the farm. It's so funny because when you pull out this little secret drawer, there's another, there's a secret compartment inside. And if you lift it up, she's engraved the initials of all her boyfriends. <laughs> wow. I mean, she hasn't had that many, to be fair. She was yeah. together really early, but there's like just a few little names in there. Oh, awesome. so beautiful. Do you love that desk? I love this desk. It's slope, you know, like it, it's mm. pre-computers and it's got, you lift it up and inside are like, you know, papers and a little mm. packet of sweets that I hide from my children. Was your mum a writer, like a journaler? Yes, uh, not a journaler, but, um, and she's written books, academic books, but okay. we've always said it's in her, you know. Mm. She made up the most wonderful stories just off the cuff at our bedside when we were little. Um, so what's, yes, tell me, Meg, about more about your next novel that's coming out. Um, so the next novel, The Angry Women's Choir, it's called. It was very much inspired by my work as I, my hobby as a singer, which I occasionally write and perform cabaret in local theatres in, in Tassie and um, joined a little choir and was really inspired by the women in that choir and the diversity of the group and the opinions and the fury, <laughs> general fury. And, um, you know. Of a woman we or of the choir? We were starting to feel cross. <laughs> what was that? I'm sorry, I missed that. The general fury, was it of the women or just of 
people that sing in choirs? No, just general, the, the general bubbling fury I, of the women. Mm. And it was at around, it was, it was around the time of, of Grace Tame being so eloquent and ferocious and vocal and um, around the Brittany Higgins saga and it was sort of just it things had sort of reached a bit of a peak and yeah crescendo and um I realized that there are so many women in my demographic who and beyond probably who are just sort of operating with a sort of bubbling level of anger um about various things and that but they just don't have the time like there are so many all the energy to express it or to stand by it um you know a lot of women I think are gaslighting themselves into believing that that um a slightly inferior status below men is their rightful place and the, re- the reality is um, I feel like in some ways the feminist, feminism movement has hit a patch where there are some people that are just so angry and so um, divisive that um, they're pushing the movement forward but at the same time cutting a few people out and I'm not criticising anyone at all but it just there are so many people who are just so busy trying to do the best they can to, to raise children and earn a living and they just don't have time to be angry. I was one of those people and I poured all of my rage and fury into this manuscript and my poor publisher, who's my first reader, sort of received this massive 150,000-word polemic it, which was like a big wallop to the head, I think. <laughs> she said, oh, burning pile of papers. <laughs> yes, it was like hot to touch. Um, so, yeah, obviously that, that draft had to be, it, there was a dramatic rewrite, but it was, a, it was very cathartic and um, mm. I learned a lot. I did so much research. I read, you know, every feminist from the beginning of feminism to today um, really enlightened myself because I was pretty, I hadn't really educated myself properly, hadn't had the time. I was a nurse. That was my tertiary education. Um, So that was all about the bones in the human body and nothing really about um, philosophy or, you know, gender studies or critical thinking. And I sort of gave myself a baptism of fire into critical thinking and, um, feminism and humanism gosh that's such a long-winded explanation of the book but it's basically women being together and using art to put their message forward and to re-enchant feminism do I make it sound really boring I do oh my god no oh I just you make it sound I think you just hit the nail on the head with so many women and their lack of time but that doesn't mean that they don't care and that they they're not angry about things but it sounds like this book is a real reflection of where feminism is at now well I hope it is um I 
I, I know that I've missed important things and I know that I've probably got things wrong, but like with, with anything, you have to try because if you don't, nothing changes. And I, I'm not saying I want to change the world with this book. I'm not going to think too highly of myself, but I wanted to speak for the person that I was when I kind of put my head in the sand because, and I don't, I take my hat off to everyone doing their best and no one's ignoring it because they don't want to know. It's just that they don't have time. So did you want to write this book or did you just start writing and it evolved? I definitely just started writing Mm. and it evolved. Mm. I came up with the title first Mm -hmm. and it's actually a bit blurry, but I came up with the title. I thought, wow, I'd pick that book up, The Angry Women's Choir. And um, and then so I sat down and I just started, and I'm not a big planner. This is how my books happen, which is unfortunate for the first draft <laughs> because it's a mess. But um, I didn't really set out to do what I did. But once I started writing, it just poured out all the things uh, you know I tried to represent so many different versions of oppression and and then I was there were so many rabbit holes I went down into and I was fascinated and furious and then the world went into lockdown and um, I was furious all over again because you know women were trying to work and trying to school their children and still do all the things that they normally do so that made me angry again. I actually had to put the manuscript aside for a little while because it was ruining my domestic life. <laughs> I, bet. I bet. How does Richard feel about this book? Oh, it's interesting you should ask because since I've just received the proofs last week, the advanced reading copies, and at the same time as that, my daughter got COVID. So we've moved, all of us are at the farm in isolation at the moment, which is partly lovely and yes. partly um, worrying, you know, but um, it means that my husband has been reading my book. Now, the level of discomfort that happens when your partner, arguably the most important person in your life, is reading your work while you're there is uncomfortable, to say the least. <laughs> but he's up to page 100 and I'm pleased to report <laughs> that he's really enjoying it. Wonderful. <laughs> So he says. I wonder if he's uncomfortable reading it, just the nature of it. I think this is the third time we've had to go through this agony. Um, My first book, The Sparkle Pages, was probably the most uncomfortable because that was quite a raunchy novel set within a normal, everyday, ordinary marriage. So that was tricky, that (laughs) one. Because, I mean, it wasn't modelled on on our marriage, but I did have to draw on a lot of, you know, my own experience. (laughs) (laughs) Where are you getting these ideas from? Mm. (laughs) Okay, so when are we expecting the Angry Women's Choir out? It's coming out on July the 5th. So a few months away, um, but all the edits are done. We're just sort of doing publicity stuff now, which is which is the fun part. Well, no, it's not the only fun part. I love writing a first draft. Um, That's also equally as fun. Um, So, yeah, July the 5th and there'll be a bit of activity around that time. Unfortunately, no book tours still because of COVID. Hopefully that changes before then. But, um, 
It's very exciting and nerve-wracking. And this phase of um, book publishing is is sort of a vulnerable time. The proofs came out last week. It's in the hands of various influencers and um, booksellers and um, booksellers are influencers in my world. But, um, yeah, so I'm waiting with bated breath for feedback. Meg, I hope it flies. I think it will. It sounds like the timing couldn't be more right for it. It does does feel like good timing. Um, Yeah, I just hope I haven't put my foot in any horrible, I don't know, upset anyone or anything. It's that sort of nerve-wracking, slightly more edgy book than my previous ones. Before I let you go, I can't not ask you about your role on the farm. Um, You describe yourself as a sometimes farmer. What does that mean? Yeah, well, for me and for a long time I said I'm a farmer wife because I don't operate on the farm really at all. Um, if there are if there are calves or heifers out, I'll put them back in. <laughs> you know how to do it. Yeah, I know how to do it. I know how things operate, but I'd be really hopeless if I had to run things on my own. So I, I always used to say I'm married to a farmer, but, you know, <clears throat> we've diversified recently. We've started bringing out our own milk and cheese um, mm-hmm. just out of necessity actually there are six children on this farm now my three and my brother-in-law's three children and we have to um, diversify so that's been a huge team effort and that's come every member of the family have had something to do with that whether it's selling stuff at the market I've been very focused on a lot of the marketing stuff so there's that so in that regard I am a farmer but the other side of it too, and I, I want to speak for so many other women in my situation who necessarily have to leave the farm and our husbands <clears throat> and our homes to educate the children because it's just not, whatever for whatever reason, boarding school doesn't work or it's not, you know, it doesn't work for your children or it's not a financial option. Um, we have to find other ways to educate them. And I've had to do that. If I wasn't doing that role to support my farming family, then who would? And how much more of a drain on the farm would it be if they were having to pay someone else to do what I do? You know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. Would there be a farm? Would there be a farm? That role, obviously, we need to get the milk out of the cows, number one, but... There are so many other roles on a farm and it's just as valid if you're not fencing, waiting for the kids to finish school. Um, So I don't say I'm a farmer's wife anymore. No. (laughs) I'm a farmer too. Either. Yes. It doesn't sit right anymore. Well, hallelujah to all you say and all you write. I can't wait to read your latest book, Meg, and... Thanks so much for taking the time to to chat with us on Life on the Land. Oh, it's been a pleasure, Sky. Thanks for having me. Isn't Meg a hoot? Make sure you read her very excellent and most recent book, The Angry Women's Choir, a great one to fire you up into the new year. If you love all things Grazy Herd, there are a number of ways to support us. Rate, review and subscribe to the podcast. 
follow us on social media, and subscribe to our bi-monthly Grazy Herb magazine. Simples. We are rural women telling the stories of our friends, colleagues, sisters, and inspirations. It's pretty awesome stuff. Until next time, keep well. My name is M Herbert, and this is a Grazy Herb podcast.